vintage sand. Hello, 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 all our vintage sand fans, all three of you are out there, happy to be here. It's July, it's hot as blazes, and but we go on undeterred. We, as in Team Vintage Sand, which would include the all-star team of John Meyer. Say hello to the nice people, Johnny. Hello. All right, the fabulous Mike Edmund, Minnesota Mike. Minneapolis, yeah, that could work too. And yours truly, your humble narrator, Josh Cabot, and we are on our 31st episode, Ooh. episode 31. As I said, it's our Baskin Robbins episode, so we give away free ice cream with 30, everyone who listens, so 31 write in. movies. Well, we should make a list of 31 movies. It's 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 exciting stuff. No, and we're getting in in all honesty, uh, fans. We are getting some really good reactions from people, and please keep it on coming. And we have a special feature at the end of today's episode that we're adding in just as a little bonus treat. So for um, episode. 31, we kind of asked, which we call uh, the final countdown, the greatest last films by great directors. We asked the question that has kind of is kind of a mystifying one because there are so many different reasons. Why is it that so many great directors' last films are so terrible? I mean, here's a partial list. Seven women. <laughs> Classic, Jesus. right? John Ford. The great John Ford. Great yes. John Ford. Rio Lobo. Ooh, yeah, that's that's. I mean, it's, really it's like Rio bad. Bravo, but three it's, times worse. Well, uh, well, he was sort of remaking the same movie for like the last yeah. ten years. And this is Howard his... freaking Hawks we're talking yeah. about here. Um, the other side of the wind, which we saw. Ep Ooh, check God. out episode seven. That was our sad. full length review. Yeah, sad. A cardboard tombstone, as we said at the time, to one of the great careers. Family plot, which is lovely and it's okay. fine. Barbara yeah. Harris was good. Yeah, it's, it's okay. It's hit like Hitchcock on vacation. Right, you wouldn't yeah. think Hitchcock, he was kind of phoning it in, yeah. You wouldn't yeah. think that. Eyes Wide Shut, we did a whole episode devoted to Eyes Wide yeah. Shut. I think it was 16 or 17. And, you know, came, you know, Mike liked it. John is sort of in the I'm middle. I'm between you passionate hate hater of it. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, you don't see that. And, of course, Buddy Buddy, which may be the worst of them <gasps> all. I mean, how does Billy Wilder's career, even after his failures in the 70s, some of those films are still interesting. Yeah, no. Fedora's okay. I like Fedora and, yep. very much. And But to end on Buddy Buddy, and as you pointed out last episode, my, he lived another 20 years. Yeah, well, he was originally uh, uh, supposed to do Schindler's List. That was originally his, his project. Oh, I can't imagine that. That must have, that would have been a really rigorous shoot for someone his yeah, age exactly. at, that, at that time. Yes. And I'd add in uh, French. They are a funny race, which is Preston Sturgis's last film after a string of disasters. Pocket full of miracles. Which Ooh, is my Capra. God! Oh, oh, that's bad. Oh, Ooh. Yeah, Frank Capra's bad. last film, Jet Pilot, which is Sternberg's last film, which is terrible. Uh, uh, my my favorite worst film is uh, Vincent Minnelli's A Matter of Time. I don't think I've ever oh, seen Oh, it's it. unwatchable. Wow. It's uh, Liza Minnelli, Ingrid Bergman, Charles Boyer, and it's truly, truly an awful movie. And it, they say it was taken away from him, the cut, but it, it doesn't matter. There's not a single... <laughs> There's nothing, nothing and, redemptive and, about uh, it. And, you know, Liza wanted to do a movie with Daddy, and she was hot at that what point. What was Preminger's last film? Because some of his uh, last films got into... The, the Human Voice, and it wasn't bad. All right, because Skidoo, you know, his late '60s yeah. stuff. Skidoo is was bad, horrifying. but then um, uh, such good friends in 1971. Yeah. One, and I had that on my 
list of 24 memorable films from, from that year. From yeah. yeah, from our, from our And then he did the one that John Lindsay started and ended his film career, uh, Peter O'Toole. <laughs> That's right. I forget the name of that movie. It was about a kidnapping. It's really bad. Oof. And then he did um, The Human Voice, which was not The Human Voice. It was from a Graham Greene. Human Factor. Which oh, was from The Graham Greene. Yeah. And I yeah. thought that was decent. All right. So we give Preminger a yeah. pass on this one. I think um, part of it, too, is that a lot of the, the, the older so-called great directors of the like 30s and 40s, they're getting older and older and older. So but they long careers. A lot of them just, you know, I'm not retiring kind of thing. Right. They just no, kept making movies. And movies had changed a lot by the mid-60s, but they were still sort of making... I mean, have you guys made it through Countess from Hong Kong? Yes. Mm. I don't mm. think it's as bad as well, everyone says. It's, it's not as bad as A King in New York, but yeah. I mean, for, you know, considering yeah, how much I love... That is pretty bad. I love Monsieur Verdoux and I love Limelight, so I'm not anti-sound chaplain, but... I liked Brando in it. Yeah. I like seeing Brando do comedy. Right, and you know some of our, you know, Polanski's most recent film was An Officer and a Spy, which read about the Dreyfus affair, which like three people saw, and you know one of my hero David Lynch's most recent film was 15 years ago already. That was Inland Empire, which was like someone doing a David Lynch greatest hits imitation oh, reel. I, I thought yeah. that was, uh, was terrible, and I'm always willing to give Lynch the benefit of the doubt. So, I mean, clearly there, you know, there are some. Last films, especially when you have the case of, say, a John Huston, who knew that the dead, who clearly wanted the dead to be his last film. You know, he was, and and it feels like a Summa, and it's wonderful. Yeah. Or um, even Prairie Home Companion. I wonder if Altman knew that that was going to be his I last. I don't know. One. I know Paul Thomas Anderson had to be on the set. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, he was really because sick. his health he? health was Altman's not good. Health was very, very bad. Right. I thought that was a decent film. And so occasionally a director knows, like the one I'm going to talk about last, the director knew that this was his last film and, it, and put every ounce of his his fading strength into it. But a lot of times, as we've said, you know, uh, Hitchcock was working on oh, yeah. uh, on a film. What's the, What was the film that David Freeman was writing with uh, him? Um, uh, the Short Night, I think it was called. Um, that so he didn't intend for family plot to be the end. So no, we really have two kinds of films here. We the have short night. Yeah, I was right. So we have films where the directors knew it was their last film and acted accordingly. The best of which I think being Houston's uh, The Dead, and films where the director did not know that it was his or her last film. And listen, we may be looking at Quentin Tarantino's final film in a couple of years if he keeps his word and stops at ten. Did you see his interview? Yes, I saw it too. I yeah. wished it was longer. Yeah, but it it seems like he's ups- I, I think he's read this, this yeah. book. Yeah, uh, final he must cuts. have. By Nat, Nat uh, Sigaloff, Sigaloff, right? And he talks about most of them are disasters of the of the final films. So that and, and that's I, I think well, it's I have issues with this book, so I'm not recommending it. Okay. But um, I, I think uh, Tarantino is just obsessed with not with having his last film being a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's not I, like he's uh, you know well, dying I, or anything. He has put on a few pounds. I noticed. Oh, but, we all yeah. lives in Israel now. And lives in Israel. Okay, well, that should make the, the that should make the uh, world peace situation a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Hamas will say, we didn't do anything wrong. And Israel will say, yes, you did. Yes, you did. I can see that unfolding. All right, so we each have a couple that we're just going to talk about two or three. And I'm going to start this time around with a film. You know, I've only taken two film classes in my life. And, you know, that's everyone, you know, because I, I teach film in, in a number of different places and everyone thinks I was a film. No, I was, I'm an English major, but the two classes I took happened to be with Andrew Saris, you know, maybe the most important American film critic along with uh, Pauline Kael and maybe James Agee. And, Who hated uh, each other. Yes. Oh, he <laughs> referred to her in class. This was in 1985. This is my senior year. He referred to her only as the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> So, and when New York film critics came around, oh my God, you could see steam coming out of his ears. Um, but uh, and the other was Gerald Mast at University of Chicago, who wrote the, the best, still the best book I've ever read on silent film comedy called *The Comic Mind*, and was the co-editor with Cohen of uh, *Film Theory and Criticism*, which is still the single best anthology of you know, film theory and criticism from the beginning. But it was Andrew, uh, I took History of World Cinema with Andrew Saris, and the last film he showed uh, in the class, because it was the first half, it was up through the 50s, was by a director I'd never heard of, and that was Max Ophuls. And it was Ophuls' last film, which was a complete disaster, utter disaster at the time, and that was Lola Montez. And Saris referred to it as possibly the greatest film ever made. So wow. coming from Andrew Saris, you've got to take that very seriously. And, you know, then I went back and watched some more of Ophuls. And, you know, it was the end of a brilliant streak. He had done Caught uh, with Barbara Belgettis and Robert Ryan. He had done Letter from an Unknown Woman. Which I like a lot. Great last American film. And then those brilliant films in France, Le Plaisir, Le Ronde, uh, Madame Day, you know, which is formerly known as The Earrings of... Movie. I just watched part of it the uh, two no, days I ago, and I. All right, we'll fight that one out uh, sometime. And mm -hmm. and and finally, Lola Montez, and then had started work on another one when he passed away suddenly. How, so he, this is so he did uh, he didn't know he was right. This was going to be. He had lost. already started work on uh, a film called The Lovers of Montparnasse, okay. and had shot some of the interiors, and it was had to be finished by somebody else. But I I have no. I, listen, we, we're all kind of editing people. We love the Hitchcocks and the brilliant editing, but except for Murnau, I think Ophuls was the greatest director ever at using the camera, camera motion and camera placement to tell a story. I mean, and the opening of Lola, Lola Montez is based on the real life of a, we can use the word, it's an old-fashioned word, but it's appropriate, a courtesan, yeah. the most famous courtesan in the second half of the, in Europe of the uh, 19th century, who um, has been reduced now to appearing as a circus act, basically, right. wherein parts of her life are reenacted, scenes from her life, and in the end, in one of the most unbearable, amazing ending scenes she is basically put on display and you can come pay a dollar yeah, it's, it's and, hard to watch. and you can touch Lola Montez and you know the person who was you know had you know uh, uh, Chopin and Wagner and King Ludwig of Bavaria as her lovers among many others Franz and, Liszt. and Franz Liszt yes who we see at the beginning and um, it is the opening shot remember is the downward move from the top of the circus tent down, 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 down to the ringmaster played by Peter Ustinov and my favorite Peter Ustinov performance. He's very good at He's it. really good. He but is he, this he was 
always kind of good. Yes. Even when he phoned uh, Hercule Poirot. In, in uh, Death on the Nile, Nile and those films. films. Yep. But he's, he, I Al, never your s- boy Albert Finney is still my favorite Poirot. Yes, though. and he's my boy. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, More but, on this later. But I do, <laughs> but I do like, uh, I, I do like you so much. But, but I never really, uh, you know, it, uh, Andrew Saris, you know, pointed out how that opening camera shot the down the non-stop it goes on for about 20 seconds the downward move is the mirror of Lola's life mm. and um, there's that circular sort of a circular oh. camera motif throughout throughout the whole movie as there I is mean. in Matt he always yeah. does that it's like those great scenes in Sunrise where the camera almost becomes its own character and is wandering and stalking you mm. know and it's the, the, the final pullback, the curtain at the end. The so the camera placement. Notice, you, do you guys watch it? Have you seen I it? I watched yeah. about an hour of it today. And and there is there, he's always shooting with objects in the frame, like there's always something blocking our view of the characters as they're flashing back and telling their story and toying with the aspect ratios. It goes square. That's like a yeah. device to sort of bring you to kind of bring you into the composition to make yeah. you feel like you're part of it. Just, um, it's it's just a miraculously shot film, and if you want an object lesson in camera, you can't do better than this film. the The problem with the film was Lola Montez herself. People say that Martine, Ca- but she can't act. I know she can't act, but yeah, people, I, I felt that the criticism was the same as it was about Novak and Vertigo. In the fact that yeah, but they Novak are, can act. Right. But they are both characters who are essentially blank slates who are shaped and repainted to fit the fantasies of the men that they are with. And so she works for me in that role. The fact that she's not a brilliant actress actually works to her advantage. And she's beautiful. Yeah, I think the and big difference... I understand what you're talking about. I think the big difference, though, is that in, in Vertigo, Kim Novak always had an inner life, a subtext that was, that was going on. Whereas this actress... No. There's really like nothing going on. No, there's nothing. Well, yeah. and you know, she the, looks nice. She looks nice. She, she looks, looks and she looks better with dark hair than she was usually blonde. Yes, yeah. but she. she looked, but this, this movie made it. I, I, I was reminded of Yvonne De Carlo, and I'm looking at. I think she's like Yvonne De Carlo, except Yvonne De Carlo could act. But 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 it's also it's also the story of the power of memory and of spirit. And shape, you know, and it's also kind of modern in that it's sort of an interesting reflection of today's celebrity culture in its own method of the times. And also about, you know, my students always talk about, we always talk about the curated life because they live on social media and so they shape and present a self to the public Mm. every day. Which something that our generation never yeah. had to deal with, and but that's what Lola does, and it's also in a different way what the Ringmaster does. He kind of shapes her life into a narrative that is presented as entertainment. Yeah, and for it's the funny because audience. at first you you think that maybe he's somewhat protective of her, but as you you realize, he's really just he just wants to exploit her for money. He doesn't really care about the fact that she's sick. No, no, no. He yeah. tells. Uh, the doctor's like, well, that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you have you have some really good actors in the small part, including Anton Walbrook, because it's yes. interesting. He reminded me of the ballet director Lermontov right. in Red in Shoes. Red Shoes. Yeah. And there he played by Anton Walbrook yeah. in Powell's Red and Pressburger's Red Shoes. And there he is now as King Ludwig of Bavaria. So I I what? I I, I thought that, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I just thought it was it, it's. 
it's unlike any other film I've ever seen, where a life is literally turned into a circus. Mm. And the recreations of the scenes in her life are, it, it's just, it, really, it is a unique film. And, of course, when Ophuls handed it to the studio, uh, like any good film about memory, like the next film I'm going to talk about, it's much more impressionistic than linear. They took it away from him, they recut it, they told it in narrow chronological order. Yeah, they, it was an absolute total failure. Did, did the original even uh, they cut did out that a version lot ever even open in the states? I don't think so. I don't think it did. No, no I don't think it because did. They, they I out, seem to remember they cut out a lot of it besides just making it in chronological yep. order too. As it? will happen with my next film. I so. saw it when oh I was fourteen, God. and they were making a big deal about it. And right, and then because then in '68, someone. A good guy got their hands on it ten years after mm -hmm. Ophuls himself had died, yeah. and uh, and was able to present it pretty much in the way that Ophuls had intended. That's when I saw it, and I, it is you know I it's been you know thirty five years since I took that class with that with Andrew Saris, and I find I don't find even Martin Carroll's emptiness, but. <laughs> But but I'm I'm sure Lola Montez was like that too. I mean, you know, but meaning meaning that she was willing to be shaped by whichever man. That, exactly. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And but I and I think that maybe he could have. I mean, look, he had Daniel Daria for Madame Day. I mean, he had some really. He could have had his pick of. Yeah. And, and I think he chose her for that reason. I don't know, but check it out. There's I a th I, apparently I read that he. Because of funding, he needed someone. He needed a box office name. That's and possible and that's, too. And that's who was available. And but I, I think it is. It's it's almost as I said with its portrait of celebrity. Excuse me, celebrity culture literally is a circus. It it feels somehow more modern, even though it's set in the eighteen seventies. What do you What do you think of the use of the color in it? Because I was wondering. His only color film, by the way. Yeah, it's to me the color. It, it's very garish. And I don't know if that is a product of age, because because the color was restored. I don't know if the color is is what we see now is exactly what he intended. I think it's meant to reflect the garishness of the circus and the garishness of the yeah. people who you know no, we, like well, Liszt's carriage and Ludwig's castle and the whole thing and just you know and she of course you know she said she was from Spain of course she was an Irish girl you know who yeah. reinvented herself and yeah. there is something very modern and very American about Lola Montez and I, oh, I very Hollywood too yes exactly John I cannot recommend the movie enough it's stunning and and it is available on HBO Max. Oh, it is fantastic! Yes. And all Criterion, of course, has a beautiful edition of it, as they do of that whole series of films that O'Fools ended his career with. Michael, to okay, you. I'm doing this in chronological order. So the first one is <laughs> Louis Bunuel's That Obscure oh, Object of Desire yay. from 1977. Screenplay by Bunuel and Jean Claude Carrier, Carrier. who we lost, just lost a couple yep. months ago. It is based on an 1898 novel, The Woman and the Puppet, by Pierre Louis. Louis. Hmm. And it's been filmed three previous times, oh. at least. There might even be a fourth. A Hollywood silent version in 1920, a French language version in 1929, and most famously, in 1935, The Devil is a Woman. Oh, Sternberg. Yes, and Dietrich. with Melina Dietrich and Ryan Lapwood. I did not realize this either. Oh, I did a little... That was the last of their run of films yes, together, right? Yes, yeah, Paramount. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but the plot is is similar 
to the other films. It's an older man who is in lust, love with a much younger woman, and a woman keeps uh, <laughs> basically claiming to be a virgin, and she won't give herself to him, and then he finds out that she's anything but. Right, and it's Fernando Rey, and it's, it's Carol Fernando Bouquet, Ray, right? And uh, Carol Bouquet, and there are two women. Remember, there are two That's right. actresses, That's and I, there's a story behind that. That's not in the, in, from the original novel, obviously. There was only one Marlene Dietrich. <laughs> um, but uh, originally that part was the, been played by Maria Schneider. Right. Oh, from um, Last, Last Tango. Tango right, sure. And yeah. apparently she was a nightmare to work with. Yes. She was also, uh, I guess, a heroin addict. And Well, that would add to the nightmare. Yes. <laughs> and didn't like butter on anything, yes, apparently. Yes, really. So. <laughs> but anyway... Go there, John. Uh... <laughs> By the third day of shooting, they realized she had to be replaced. And uh, they thought they were going to just have to fold the whole movie and shut down the set and everything. And so the uh, producer, Serge Segelman and Brunwell were having many drinks in the hotel bar. And it was Segelman who uh, thought, why don't we just put two actresses in there and then if something goes wrong... Well, there was... I read that he he had this idea previously a long time ago. For another movie. For another movie. Yeah. And then they... It, right. Then it came back again it's, or whatever. It's, it's like, very, something that Lynch picks up on in a couple of his films where the same character is played by an actor and then played yeah. by another actor. Yeah. yeah. But um, uh, it, was, it was basically a joke and Bunuel kind of said... Why not? And they hired Carol Bouquet and Angela Molina to play Conchita. And they're so different. And they're so different. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And, they're um, both really good in it. They're both they're, very good. They're and, so but different. They're very different. And that's part of the humor of this. Of the, I, I have a feeling, I, I don't remember The Devil as a Woman being funny at all. New. No. Well, none of those Sternberg films yeah. were, in, were. And this is a funny film, even though it was being advertised as a drama. Well, the humor is very... It's, it's dry. It's, dry, well, it's, dry. it's dry, but it's there. <laughs> it's, it's there. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of, one of my favorite lines is when uh, uh, he's in a uh, bar having a martini and there's a fly in his martini. And he complains to the waiter. And the waiter says, a fly? I've been after that one for days. And it had to, <laughs> it had to fall into your glass. <laughs> I mean, and it, it's little, little uh, comedic things like that. Uh, throughout, I can't say for sure if Brunel knew this was going to be his last. I was going to ask. Yeah, he said after Belle du Jour in 1967 that would be his last movie, he, and then The Milky Way in 1969 that would be it. Tristana, The Street Charm of the Bourgeoisie, and then The Phantom of Liberty, which was he, the one disappointment. Right, but that that, that when he comes back to Europe in '61, that yeah. string from Viridiana oh. till the end is just miraculous. He was 77 when he shot this film. It wasn't a financial success, but it was a, a critical success. Success d'estime. It uh, got two Oscar nominations for Best Foreign Language Film and Adapted Screenplay, and won the LA Film Critics Award for Foreign Language Film, and the National Society of Film Critics, while awarding Annie Hall Best Picture, gave its director to Bunuel. Interesting. And so, at 77, he decided to write his autobiography called My Last Side, which I have not read, but I hear it's kind of wild. I would imagine. And, yeah. and he yeah. wrote it with um, uh, Jean-Claude Carré, who is his 
you know, frequent co collaborator. He wrote that autobiography, and then he died in 1983 at the age of 83. Um, what, what? It, what an amazing what career! career. Yeah. I know because he what starts out doing those avant-garde films, yeah. Chien Andalou and Lage d'Or, yeah. and then you know does the docu does um, what's the documentary? Land Without Bread, Tierra yes. Sans, I didn't yeah. see that. which yeah. gets his ass kicked out of Spain, right. and then you know wanders, winds up in Mexico, has a decent yeah. career in Mexico with Olvidad, and then somehow makes his way back to Europe and has really for 15 years an unbroken run even Phantom of Liberty even though the lesser ones in and Milky Way are interesting I like and Milky Way. and the good ones you know my favorite is Exterminating Angel yeah. from that bunch and but, my favorite and, is The Sweet Charm and the movies were made on a very modest budget oh yeah all of them all of them <coughs> but you have to say this he was always consistent in his attacking yeah. the powers that be yeah. whether they religious or political or I kind of I kind of see that obscure object desire as it's it, I mean, because it's sort of random the way the two different actresses interchange. Yeah, very much so. It, get, yeah. they get, it gets shorter and shorter as the film yeah, goes yes. on. Interesting. There's one yep. where and one uh, actress goes into the bathroom and another one comes yeah. out. As, and as we said before, they're both they're so different. One is like very very earthy, and one is and and the other is very very cool, sort of ethereal. And, yeah. Yeah, and almost like a vertigo idea. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I kind of see it too that. He's created this image in his mind of a woman. He doesn't really know much about, about exactly. her at all. It could, it could, right. And he doesn't seem to be interested in knowing and getting really to getting to know her or whatever, except he just wants to possess her. Yeah. And, 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 and most likely conquer her. Right, and that's why she's an object of desire. Yeah. It could yeah. be anybody. Yeah. I mean, what that, is because yeah. that ending. Yes. Well, and also Fernando Rey is so... Oh, well, he's, oh he's excellent. He's excellent, excellent, although I read that his voice was dubbed. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's this. Uh, did not know yeah. that. Always? No, no, for that movie. Oh, I don't know. Why? I don't know. Maybe he was sick? Oh, that's possible. I, I don't know. All Interesting. Right, so there is someone who ends on a high note. Interesting. Johnny, what you got for us? Oh, not a high note. <laughs> well. Okay, the first movie I'm talking about is by the great Japanese director, Kenji Mitsuguchi. And uh. one of the reasons I'm picking this movie, too, is because I am... Afraid that Mitsuguchi is becoming forgotten. Oh, totally. Uh, because there are really no more so called art house retrospective film theaters where we would occasionally see one God, of his movies. I, I saw Getsu a couple of years ago at the. Uh, at um, I took my wife to see it at the um, film festival here, and she's like, "Oh my God, this is the most beautiful thing I've yeah. ever seen." Yeah, it's such a and it's I such a great movie. And I love Sancho. Yeah, yeah that's a great movie too. In the last chrysanthemum, uh, this, uh, I mean, his sense of of they have to be seen on a large screen to really be fully appreciated because completely. he had such a great sense of composition, the uh, the meticulous set design, the use of deep focus, and and the emotional impact of the acting and stories. It's just so much greater on a big screen. And of all male directors, he was perhaps most sensitive to the plight. Of women. Yeah, and that's something I wanted to think of because uh, a little about his background was he was one of three children, and his father was a carpenter, and they were they were a family that was sort of modestly middle class. His father came up with this this scheme to make a living selling raincoats to the soldiers during the Russo-Japanese War. He thought he was going to make a lot of money. <laughs> Unfortunately, the war didn't last that long, so he didn't make much money, and they suddenly, you know, were uh, not in poverty, but they, they were strapped for money, and 
the family decided to give up the oldest daughter for adoption. I'm putting that in quotes. Wow. To a geisha house. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, and um, No wonder all these suffering yes. women. Yeah. So he was extremely sensitive to this. It profoundly affected his outlook on, on Japanese society, on women, and his father. Hmm. Uh, his father, he, 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 he felt that his father's treatment of his mother was extremely brutal. And he maintained a, f- a very fierce resistance against his father throughout his life. And you see some of that in Street of Shame. Hmm. And, and, yeah. What year so, was Street of Shame? Early 60s? 50? 1956. 56, Six. earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I don't think he was... He was not aware at all that it was going to be his last movie. Because also he was... At an early age, he had he developed uh, rheumatoid arthritis, mm. so he basically was in pain most of his life. Ooh. Yeah, and the sister that was sold into a geisha house eventually was taking care of him and took in the other siblings, and she was very, very instrumental in helping him get started with classes, and and then he became very interested in opera. He was doing set design. And from there, it eventually moved into motion pictures. Wow. So uh, that tells you a lot about his outlook on life and why so many of the films are about the subjects that they're about. Um, But anyway, Street of Shame is about a a group of women who work in a brothel in Tokyo. And each has a, a very particular story as to why they are working in a brothel. They're all basically have some sort of economic reason, some sort of debt to pay off. Uh, one of them is uh, she's married, they have a baby, and the husband lost his job. He's in a deep depression. He tries to kill himself. She's basically supporting the family. Um, one is getting older. There's a possible that is there's a man who wants to marry her, and she sort of sees that as a way of getting out of the brothel. Another has been basically supporting her son through the money she makes at the brothel, and now he's at an age where perhaps he can support her. So she's thinking, maybe I can get out of this. Another has been very, very diligent about saving her money, and she's eventually able to pay off debts, and she does get out. And another who seems to be the most carefree of all, and she spends money wildly, there's a twist at the end, and you find out why she's in a brothel when her father comes to visit. Yeah. Hmm. And um, it's, it's beautifully done, very, very well acted. Uh, it's sort of an ensemble cast. Uh, and it's contemporary? It takes yes, place? Yes, it's contemporary. And I always think of Mizuguchi back in like Shogunate Japan. I know, Japan. I know. No, it's, it's contemporary. Well, they're, they're actually having a uh, referendum. Or not a referendum. Yes, uh, yes. and and there's to a outlaw refer- prostitution. To outlaw prostitution because that's also hanging. What are we going to do if that happens? How will we support ourselves? Even though they all desperately want to get out of this so-called profession, and um, apparently the movie was very instrumental in getting the law passed. Yeah. So, um, it's it's a it's simply told, but it is emotionally. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, I'm, it really is heartbreaking. I'm really glad you picked it, John, because I, I watched it a few days ago. I guess it was on YouTube, or it's on YouTube. It's also on Criterion. It's probably available a few other places. But I found it. I did eventually. I found it on YouTube, and it was it, it good yeah. print. 
this it was okay. It was okay. Their Criterion print is better. Oh, well. they usually are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's it's definitely worth watching. Yeah, it's really really liked it. Yeah, no, it's it's really it's really good. And I, you know, it's one of my missions. You know, when I have more time to see some of Mizuguchi's films before Ugetsu. Uh, yeah. You know, because yeah. I know I know a little bit of Ozu's work early on, but I don't know Mizuguchi's early work at They're all. They're very different too, because Ozu usually was more usually set in modern day. Yes. Yeah, and a lot of times you, uh, Mizuguchi would deal with uh, allegory. Right. This this is not really an allegory. No. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, this, it's is, interesting. this is more. This is more Very realistic. social realist, yeah. right? Because his most famous film is such a a, a magic realist, for lack of a better word. You yeah, know, with our yeah. Potter falling in love with a a, this, a ghost, essentially. Yes. And and God, oh, you get to is no, It's such a great movie. I re- I haven't seen Street of Shame in years. I really need to get back to it. Yeah. But I also want to see some of his earlier stuff because I I really like one of the things I really like about his work is the way he. He knows where to place the camera yes. to be able to do as few cuts as possible. Wells was very good at this. Right. Absolutely. And so good that call. the power of the acting really draws you in. So it has such a great emotional impact. There's that part in Street of Shame where that guy comes and tries to tries to kill one of them. Yeah. And he's got the camera in a place so that he doesn't have to cut at all. Nope. And you know exactly what's going on, and you can feel it. And it's... it's he was so smart! Yes. Yeah. Uh, just in, in one of the great instinctive filmmakers of, uh, of, of all time. Someone that everybody should get to know. Of course, you know, it seems to me that he strikes the middle ground between Kurosawa, who was so westernized in his yes. approach, and yes. Ozu, who does that tatami thing where the camera's always at the yeah. level where you'd be sitting on a mat yeah. And you know it's yeah. it's brilliant, and Mizuguchi kind of strikes the you know hits the middle ground between the two. Yes, yeah, that's 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 a good way to put it. Yeah, I am a huge fan. See all of them, but I have to see Street of Shame again. All right, for my next one, well, my first one was a film that was about memory and and the, the pain of memory, and it was taken away from its director and cut to ribbons and ordered chronologically and absolutely destroyed. And that's this film, too. And uh, if you haven't guessed already, of course, I'm talking about Sergio Leone's last film, Once Upon a Time in America. And, you know, we, we most of you know about Leone's career, the four uh, spaghetti westerns, of which I th- people like Once Upon a Time in the West. I know, Mike, you find it like <laughs> paint-drying. I know a lot of people do. And that opening twenty-two minute credit sequence, but uh, I and think Henry Fonda's great in it. He though. is very, very good in it. Yeah. Well, I will give you that. And Marconi's score for it. And we'll talk, we'll talk yeah. about that in a minute. But he then uh, was producing in seventy-two. He was producing a film that's alternately, alternately known as Once Upon a Time: The Revolution, Duck You Sucker, or A Fistful of Dynamite, which is, uh, and he ended up directing it, the one with Rod Steiger and uh, James Coburn, yes. which is actually quite good. Yeah. And I've quite beautiful it's not bad. in its way yeah, and like he the... turned down the godfather he was offered the godfather That's before right. yeah. uh before coppola was um because he wanted to make his gangster film his way and the film he made was about surprisingly not about the italian mob but about the murder incorporated sort of jewish mob that arose out of the immigrants coming to the lower east side in the early turn of the century and that is once upon a time in america and he, it apparently got 
the longest standing ovation in the history of the Cannes Film Festival, a 20-minute ovation that, according to some accounts, you could hear across the street. It was so loud. Wow. Studios here got their hands on it, cut it from three and a half hours to two, put it in chronological order, and it was a complete and utter failure. Leonie lived another five years and had all kinds of projects that were about to go and fell apart at the last minute. But, you know, and it's maybe kind of a romantic idea, but I think the failure and what they did to this film, you know... But wasn't it soon after Restored? Because I remember seeing yeah. it yes. almost yeah. within months of... Uh, do you remember that was one when you and I roomed together back in 1987? That was one of the posters I had yes, up on. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> I do remember talking about the movie a lot with you. Yes. That's right. We did. so I I have been a fan for a long time. It's um it, it's it's not only about memory. You know, in in Tony, uh, I talk about Tony Morrison a lot. Uh, um, she in Beloved, she uses the word rememory. Not just memory. Yeah. It's not just the memory, uh, a personal recollection of an incident. It's about a place that's sort of filled with memories. And that's what happens to Robert De Niro's character. Yeah. The two main characters are Max, played by James Woods, who unfortunately has become such a horrifying ass. But he's a really good actor when he wants yes, to be. Yes, yeah. he was. And, he De Niro, and De Niro at his best, who play Max and Noodles, respectively, who lead this gang, and it's about their history. And the it it opens with kind of an act of violence, and the other three members of the gang besides Noodles are killed, and Noodles takes off. He tries to get the money they've stashed; it's gone, and so he just doesn't look back and runs. And now we flash forward to 1968, and he's been called back by someone, and I won't say who it is or what's going on because that's the mystery of it, but. There is so much beauty in this film. First of all, the recreations of the Lower East Side, of that oh, yeah. Jewish pushcart Lower East yeah. Side, are so detailed and so beautiful. Plus, yeah. he's working with his two most important collaborators, Tonino Delacoli, who is always his uh, cinematographer, and of course, Morricone. And it's a beautiful, another one I of those love the score. beautiful yeah, the score Morricone yeah. scores. And we travel back and forth, and occasionally it's very confusing, and that's what the studio objected to. When are we? Where wow. are, you know, it is, but it is a film. They probably would have cut apart The Conformist, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, Conformist you know, wasn't that long, though. And no. that's, <laughs> that's and true. Going back to Toni Morrison, that's why I love Beloved so much, and the mo even the movie of it, which Jonathan Demme did, which everyone hated, which I always talk about on this podcast, <laughs> which dared to keep Morrison's structure, and that it's constantly jumping back and forth in time with narrators, because that's how memory works. Yes, sure. Memory doesn't yeah. work in a linear way, and Leone's film, the way he envisioned it, you know, reflects that in a way that I, I've I've seen almost no other films do. I mean, we see De Niro's, can we see Noodles? He's haunted by because it's his betrayal. He is convinced by Max's girlfriend that they're about to do some crazy kind of kind of robbery, and Max's girlfriend convinces Noodles to rat them out to the cops. So they'll go to jail for a year, but they won't do this. Suicidal, dangerous job yeah. where they'll surely be killed, but they end up getting killed anyway, possibly because Max shot first because he has sort of a death wish because his father... I mean, it's... it's there's And what I love no, about it... It's a very, it, very rich film. It's a very rich film. And, you know, there is... It opens and ends, remember, in the Opium House. 
which is where Noodles goes to escape everything when he realizes that his tipping off the cops has resulted in the deaths of his friends. And the last scene we see is we're back there. And so pe people have speculated that the entire film is an opium dream. It's an opium dream, yes. Dream. Yeah. And it could be, I think that kind of takes away from it a I, I feel bit. the same way. I, I, I've heard that theory before and I... No. I, I think it sort of takes away a lot of the power of the movie. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I, I never bought it. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't buy that no. either. And listen, you know, we were talking about it before. Like any Leone film, it has some real flaws. He lingers on yeah. scenes. Yeah, and in this movie, sometimes ever. it works, and there's but, moments where. So and I have one real casting problem, which is Elizabeth McGovern. She's so wrong for the role. She's too young. But, you know, a great... Uh, a 21, they, yeah. she was, when she, they started shooting. Yeah. <laughs> she was just way too young for I mean, that part. She's I mean, really not right for the part. And she's not beginning. right. No, but it's interesting. I did, I'd forgotten that it's Jennifer Connelly who plays her yes. as a young girl. Right. In one of her first films. And, and she would have been perfect if she was 30. <laughs> right, ex exactly. <laughs> but... but just, uh, <laughs> and, and the scene where Mac uh, McGovern is all in white... As an age, well, I think that also uh, uh, lends work. itself to the idea too that it was Maybe an dream. opium dream that he's remembering her as she was, and that is part of memory to begin with. Right. Um, we, 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 it's 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 I not mean, it's not a recording; is, it's our perception. Yeah. There, there. I mean, there is. You can kind of say that when he goes, when the Robert De Niro character goes and he takes out, you know, he buys out that restaurant for the night and everything. The, on the, on the shore, yeah. Take her out and. After what happens that night, I don't want to go into detail because if you haven't seen, I'm going to ruin it. Right. But you could say that was after after that he's metaphorically has died. Yes. I mean his his life is over. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right, John. It, it, I mean, there's just it's so and the relationship between Max and Noodles is so believable. I yeah. mean, friendships yeah. are not usually a big part. I mean, the only the only other friendship in Leone films is between Tuco and uh, the man with no name in uh and that's hardly a friendship. So, uh this is this is just and and, and what I love that Leone does, it's the reason I love Passion of Joan of Arc so much is that, you know, think of the opening of Good the Bad and the Ugly, you know, just that intense close-up of the bad guy's face. I mean, there's faces, faces, faces. This is a story told to a large extent in faces. But if you don't like Leone and you find him too slow, as many people do, Mike, you're not alone in that, you're not going to love Once Upon a Time in America. Well, it's my favorite, though. It is my favorite Leone yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I don't like Leone, but I like Once Upon a Time in America a lot. I have a few little things about it I don't like. You already brought up Elizabeth McGovern. I think she's... And I she's a she's, good actress. Don't get yeah, me wrong. I like Elizabeth. I think, I think she's miscast. Um, it doesn't... You know, destroy the movie, no. but it would have been better if they had someone I think who maybe was more appropriate. And as you said, I'm sure there were plenty of other actresses around. As to why he decided on her, I I don't know. I really like that both James Woods and De Niro, the way that the contrast between because I think De Niro is excellent, and I really Wonderful. love I really love how there's so many moments where he could have gone big, and he doesn't. Yeah, and it and it draws you into him. Absolutely, and, and it's sort of like. Eventually, you become him. You're 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 seeing everything through him, and there's that one line that just kind of it really kind of breaks your heart. And he says, "What have you been doing all these years?" He says, "Going to bed early." Going to bed early. Because basically, as I said before, he's he's been dead ever since what happened to him. 
And again, I don't want. Uh, I, uh, I can't. The ending where he refers to one of the characters. I can't even. Uh, I can't even say. It. All right, yeah, you, ha- you have to see it. It's worth yeah, it. Even if you well, don't, we could say spoiler alert. We no, talk about no, the last no, 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 no. I don't. <laughs> even, want to do. But but even if I'm taking it from my uh, viewpoint, even if you don't like Leone, that's the one film, Leone film that you should see, because I personally think it is far as best. But it's got to be the long version, and I guess both right. versions yeah. are available. I get oh, really? Don't, don't I don't the, the, other, the other original short cut-up version? Is oh, it, it was on TV uh, oh, a few years ago Lord. on AMC, I think. No. Oh, really? And it was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. And you know, again, it's non-linear, so be prepared to go along for the ride and struggle a little bit as you figure out when we are and what's going on. But it's uh, for me, it was totally worth the effort. And you know, the other good people in the cast who kind of underused Treat... I like Treat Williams in it as yeah, uh, the labor leader. Yeah, he's pretty good, and I usually yeah. not don't crazy like, about yeah. it. Yeah. Joe Pesci shows up, Burt Young. Yeah. And he's, and he's really good in the little bit part uh, he has. Joe Pesci to me can't do wrong. Tuesday Weld shows up. William Forsythe yeah, is good. there. That's he's right. I like Tuesday Weld. And was that Danny Aiello's first movie? Oh. So I, I had said when we did our, our episode on The Irishman, um, I had compared that to this as the only other gangster film mm. that has this scope of epic time. And I maintained, and you guys disagreed with me, and I think a lot of people would, that Once Upon a Time in America is a better film. I still think so. Than the I still Irishman? think it's a better film than The Irishman. No. Not, Mike's not going to give me that one. I won't All right. give you that But no. it crashed and burned, and as I said, Leone had a couple of irons in the fire, but nothing ever came. It's and too it, bad Netflix wasn't around. Yeah, no, exactly, because no. like that's where Scorsese, point. that's a very good point, Mike, where Scorsese would find a home. So yeah, from 1984, his final film, although he obviously did not know it was going to be his last film, Sergio Leone's, his cut, the three and a half hour cut, worth yeah. every minute of it of Once Upon a Time in America, from 84. Mike? You don't want to talk about the last scene, huh? Nope, 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 <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Okay, nope. my next film is probably known to most people who listen to this podcast, because it was actually a very popular film. It's David Lean's A Passage to India. Sure enough. Now, he said publicly after Dr. Zhivago that that would be his final film because the reviews on Dr. Zhivago, people seem to forget, were not good. Yeah. They were actually, for the most part, pretty bad reviews. It's, I don't love the movie. I love her. Yeah, I don't, I I don't like, like it. I, but And you love everything Julie Christie does. I do not love every movie Julie Christie <laughs> is in. I do not like Dr. Shivago. I actually think Christie's not very good in Dr. Shivago. I don't I think, think so either. Yeah. I think she's... I think, I think Rod she, Steiger's very good. I think she, Rod Steiger, and Tom Courtney. Tom and Tom yes, Courtney Tom is excellent. Are Always. good. I think everybody else aren't... Especially Omar, good. the title character. Oh, no, it's, it, it's, <laughs> it's not good. I, I just got to read a couple of um, uh, quotes. Uh, Pauline Kael called it a coffee table movie and a trivialization Oof. of the Re- Russian Revolution. And David Thompson said it reeked of middle-brow compromise. And Roger Ebert said it was a soapy and manipulative and, mus- and mushy. Oof. Well, but, yeah, but it's kind of fun in that way. But, well, and then after that was Ryan's daughter, which was a Yeah, well, that's, well, that's it. Despite that, Dr. Shivago made a made ton of a money. Ton of money yeah. And I got a tiny, tiny little story. I met Robert Bolt's nephew in London, and he told me this incredible story that uh, you know, his uncle was to write the screenplay for Dr. Shivago. But his agent said he had a choice uh, to either get the money up front or to get, have a percentage of it. Uh-huh. And his agent said, It'll never be made. Needless to say, Robert Bolt got a new agent after that. Because, from what I understand, David Lean made $10 million just from the percentages up until until, um, Ryan's daughter. 
And then why the 14 years of silence between Ryan's Okay, well, Ryan's and, uh, daughter didn't make money. Right, it was And disaster. got terrible reviews. It, 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 it did okay, but the reviews, it, it just, it, he took it personally. It was mm. long. And it is very long. I got a quote uh, about Ryan's daughter. Vincent Canby said, it doesn't transfigure the world. It embalms it. Oh, <laughs> yikes. This is the oh, all zinger critic episode. Wow. Actually, I like Ryan's daughter more than Dr. More than Dr. Shivago. It, it, it has good things in it. It is good things. It's I think beautiful. some wonderful it's acting. Really beautiful. It's beautiful. It won the yes. Oscar for, uh, for uh, cinematography, and John Mills got the supporting actor, but it did not make money. So Lean said he had had it, but. He was a huge fan of E.M. Forster, mm-hmm. and he'd been trying for years to get um, the rights to a passage to India, and it wasn't it was impossible. Forster died in 1970. He had never allowed any of his fil- uh, books to be made into films, uh, although there was a stage version of a passage to India that he did approve by the Indian playwright Satha Rama Rao. Stage version. Yeah. Uh, it was done in New York for a few months. Gladys wow. Cooper was wow. Really? It. Yeah. Wow. And it didn't run a long time, but there were... Uh, uh, anyway, Forrester died in 1970, didn't have any heirs. So uh, the King's College of Cambridge had inherited the rights, but it w- they didn't wouldn't uh, allow uh, anything to be made from Forrester until 1980. There was this film enthusiast professor who got control of... Uh, got control of the estate or through the college and he allowed it and so it was like 1980 that uh, Lean said okay I'm going to make this film but it took another four years because it took a lot of time to raise the money Uh. he was not allowed um, uh, I don't know should I reveal the plot a little bit of a passage to India okay Uh, Miss Questet a British woman Miss Questet sails to India with Mrs. Moore the mother of her fiance. This is more. And she meets a young Indian doctor, Hasiz, who's also a close friend of an English instructor, Fielding. And he invites the two women to tour the famed um, Marabar Caves. Right. And Miss Quested is either molested or imagines that she was molested and Aziz is tried for the assault. And have you read the book? No. I haven't either. Apparently there is differences. The book is far more political yeah. than the movie. It's much more, much more critical of yeah. British society. Right. Uh, so I'm not going to... And know, colonialism I'm in general. I'm not going to say yes. yeah. how, how it ends, but it was very, very hard. Uh, they got uh, two um, EMI and HBO with producers. He was given a budget of $16 million, which wasn't a lot for that time, and he couldn't really hire stars. He got... For the three leads, he got Judy Davis, who'd only appeared in one movie before that, uh, uh, My Brilliant Career. Right. And she'd also was in, um, played young Golda Meir in A Woman Called Golda, the Ingrid, the Ingrid Bergman. Bergman. Right. But, uh, but she was not really well known at that yeah. time. She's good in it, though. She's very, yeah, she's she's very, very good. Um, and then um, Victor Banachi, who played Dr. Aziz, was totally unknown. And he's really good. And he's very good. And then the third lead was Peggy Ashcroft, who was known in British stage circles. She was yeah. the grand dame, great Shakespearean she actress. She was not a film actress? No. No, not at all. She had only made she's in the nine 39 films, steps. but she's in the 39 steps. She plays the she farmer's, plays farmer's, farmer's wife. wife. That's yeah. right. Yes. Who gives yeah. the, yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. and that was the only thing I knew her from, apart from a, a bit part as Glenda Jackson's mother 
in Sunday Bloody Sunday, Sunday but she I checked on IMDb she'd only made up until that point nine movies wow. in a 40 wow. year career so and she's excellent and she's she's too is excellent but um, the film he wasn't allowed to do um, you know widescreen cinemascope his David to, Lee thing he had to yeah. keep it down it was a, as I say an HBO production and, and, but he filmed it on, on location, and the film, I think, works beautifully. beautifully. I think it's his yeah. best film since Bridge on the River Quad. I even like it more than The Lawns of Arabia, which... Yeah, I, I like it a lot. I it's not, it's, it's, not a, it's not one of the lean movies I would go around recommending to people simply because of... If they're not familiar with lean at all. Yeah. You know, like... After they've seen the other ones, then I would say, okay, now you should watch... Well, and then they should watch like, the black and white British ones, like Brief Encounter. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and the Oliver Twist, that are so yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and, and it's like a totally, right, right. They're totally yeah. different. I know, it's lean. almost like he went to this big transition. and I, I, Because a lot of critics say that I prefer his the older British, British films. Uh-huh. But all the critics obviously like this because it got... Um, it won the New York Film Critics Award and the National Society of uh, not National uh, National Board of Review Awards for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress. And it lost Peggy Am- Ashcroft. Amadeus, right? Eleven nominations and lost most of them to Amadeus. Uh, it only won for Maurice Jarre's original score, which I'm not yeah. 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 and Best Supporting Actress for Ashcroft, who right. got the. Um, but and she became at seventy-seven the oldest actress to win. Uh, the Best Supporting Actress Oscar. But I think it's a delightful movie. I can't really... My only, I don't know if delightful is the right word, well, but I know what you're saying. <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it, you don't come out of it feeling like... Uh, well, no, but it, has, it has a resolution, resolution. that kind of makes you feel yeah. like, oh. No, but it and there's humor. There's the most humor yeah. in, in any, any, any yeah. movie since Hobson's Choice. <laughs> no, but it's almost like a combination of those intimate British stories with the epic sweep of his 50s and 60s yeah. films, and it sort of finds that middle ground, and it, it works yeah. for me, too. Yeah. And I'm not a, I'm not a huge E.M. Forster fan, but I, it's just a beautiful film. Yeah, it's... it's, it's uh, and Lee not only did the, um, directed it, but he also did the screenplay, because I guess he was on the outs with Robert Bolt, and he did the editing. Wow. I mean... Which is not unusual for Lee. That's how he started no, out. No, right. but... To actually, I think he did to save money, <laughs> because he had to keep it on. I've, I've always heard though that even if he wasn't credited as the editor, he was very involved. Yes, yes. well, that's yeah. true. That's, that's not, not true surprising. with a lot of directors. Yeah. And after that, he um, oh God, he wanted to make oh oh yeah yeah on my second page. He tried to raise money. <laughs> we let you see the seams here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At Vintage Sand. Yes. It's a reading of Vintage Sand. I thought that you were saying this all off the top of your head, Michael. No, I am not reading It's radio. I'm not telling anyone about the paper. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> this is how I got Danny DeVito and Johnny Lillo mixed up because I didn't have a paper. Wrong page. <laughs> Mine. Anyway, for several years, Lean tried to raise money to do a film of Joseph uh, Conrad's Nostromo. Nostromo. And at one point, Steven Spielberg had either, either had been attached as executive producer, but he wasn't failing health, and he died in 1991 at age 83. So it was seven years seven after. Seven years came after. Out, came out. But boy, that is a so really... I so he didn't know it was going to be his last film. He but, did not. Right. He, uh, 
as I said, he thought Dr. Shivago would be because he was so stung by the reviews. Who knew? And according to Robert Bolt's nephew, Lena's still making money. Lena State is still making money from sure, Dr. Shivago. I'm sure. Oh, my God. What a bonehead move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The moral of the story is... If you're a good writer, a good actor, get a good agent. Get a good agent. If you've learned anything from Vintage Sand, it's yes. that. All right, Johnny, to you. What's your other? Okay, my second movie is Krzysztof Kozlowski's uh. last film. Uh, and it's the third movie in his trilogy, Three Colors trilogy. The, the first color. was blue, the second was white, and the last one, the third was Red, which I think is the best of the three. No doubt. And it's a very, very rich film with, with Irene Jacob and Jean-Louis Trentayel. And it is, it's really, really beautiful. Cross yourself when you say that name. Yeah. yeah I oh, do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's uh, such a great actor. Now, wait, no, he, he really, did, really He is. did the Decalogue before. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah that was, it was released that was, after. That was for, right. It was okay, for right, TV. Mine, it was right. for TV. He actually started out as a documentarian and then eventually graduated to making films and, and feature films and worked in TV to make the, the Decalogue. And uh, he... Knew this was going to be his last film. He said he announced his retirement, and it was a few years later when he died uh, during open heart surgery. Huh. But Michael brought up earlier that I he was a, working on a script, a, 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 a trilogy. I think it had to do heaven, hell, and something else. I'm not. Yeah, but positive. that's well. That sounds like him because yeah, uh, it was a trilogy. He, he characterized himself as having one good characteristic. I am a pessimist. I always imagine the worst. To me, the future is a black hole. <laughs> but I'm not <laughs> enchanté. But he did. But he did announce his retirement after that, and, and after Red. And I'm not positive that he was going to direct these films. He could have. Yeah, maybe he was just going to be the writer. Yeah, it's I, possible. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, well, let's, let's let's talk a little bit about the plot. Uh, Valentine, uh, played by. Irene Jacob is a student at the University of Geneva. She works, also works as a model, and she takes ballet classes. Her boyfriend is in London, and you hear from the, uh, first of all, I, the opening, I love that opening with the phone call and the, the idea of pursuing the, the cables and everything. It's so great. Um, but anyway, you right away you get a sense that her boyfriend is very, very suspicious and possessive. He sounds like a real jerk. Um, and she's she wants she wants to be involved. She's she's desperately involved in a in a deep romantic relationship, and you can tell from the beginning she's not really getting that from him. Hmm. Um, anyway, she's uh, coming back from a, a photo shoot. Um, she's driving a car. She's distracted. She accidentally hits a dog. She gets out of the car and she is able to see from the the dog tag and everything where the owner lives and she brings the dog to the owner who is played by the judge uh, Jean-Louis Tretillon as you say we should cross ourselves, cross ourselves. <laughs> I'm Jewish and I'm crossing myself and he doesn't seem to be <laughs> holy ghost <laughs> uh, he doesn't seem to be really that concerned because he remarks that the dog is always running away but uh, so she decides to bring the dog to the vet and uh, discovers that the dog is pregnant but the dog is going to be okay um, and the next day uh, there's money delivered to her she brings the dog back 
to the judge and confirms that he was the one who sent the money to her and then she's she's very stringent about making sure he hasn't overpaid her so you know she gives back some of the money she only takes what the actual bill costs but she discovers that he is a retired judge who is spending his time eavesdropping on neighbors phone calls <laughs> you could say that he is in judgment of these people of his neighbors this is how he's entertaining himself he doesn't have a TV yeah he doesn't have a TV and he's and she is absolutely appalled but you you sense right away that she is a person of great empathy and compassion and she starts to go over to tell one of the people and then realizes that the daughter is listening in the phone call and she just makes up an excuse saying that she's in the wrong place and goes back but um, what happens is that I don't want to give away too much of the plot because so much of it is is depending on chance uh, serendipity coincidence fate destiny however you want to describe these things eventually a friendship really grows between the two of them he even says to her towards the end that maybe you were the woman that I never met huh. And he he, t he tells he tells her about his unrequited love, and it's it's very sad. But they they actually become start to become very very meaningful friends, even though they really don't have much in common. And there's a a subplot of a neighbor of of hers who is an aspiring judge. He's in law school. He has this relationship with a slightly older woman, and they're cross always crossing paths. Because that's one of the themes of the intertwining lives, how everything eventually end up together. And I don't want to go into what happens in the very, very last scene because I will ruin the movie for someone who has not seen it before, the climax. But uh, it's a good one. John, I love what, this movie. What, are, what would you, for people who don't know the Tree Color um, trilogy, what are the connections between this and, and White and Blue? Well, there's the idea, there's the whole idea that the tricolor, the, the French flag, each representing certain thing. Uh, the first movie, Blue, with Juliette Binoche, uh, it's a terrible tragedy. She loses her daughter and husband in a car accident, and it's her dealing with that. Um, the second one, White. Uh, is sort of a, a comedy sort with of. Julie Delpy. It's the weakest of the of the three. Agreed. And and Red is really. I mean, there's the classic classic uh, symbols for for the color red is uh, there's positive and negatives to that. Action, strength, energy, passion would be the positive side, and negative would be anger, danger, revenge aggression and they're they're always at each other ends throughout the whole movie I mean he's he's constantly using the color red in the movie but it works well it's not heavy-handed oh, at all no. it's integrated no, it's beautiful. it's integrated it. beautifully the way it. he does it uh, and there's also a motif of broken glass throughout the movie too which hmm. you could say symbolizes broken relationships uh, the negative side of of red uh, there's there's a part worth the neighbors because he turns himself in to the court he writes letters to the the neighbors that he's been doing as he confesses and has to go to court and then afterwards people start throwing rocks through the windows <laughs> and so. but but in other words people who haven't seen white and blue can see this without yes yes, yes. yes definitely 
You don't Absolutely. have to suffer through the other two. <laughs> because blue is pretty depressing. Yeah. And, and white and is white's not funny. As much well, as I love Julie Delpy. Yeah. Well, I do too. I, yeah, I thought some, it was okay. Some people have referred to it as a black comedy, but it's it's definitely the weakest of the three. Yeah. All right. So that was what? 94. 94. 94 got 94. Uh, three Oscar nominations. Yeah. Direction, screenplay, and cinematography. Yep. Yep. And deserving, and it won, it won, and won other critics awards yep. for best foreign film. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I and I have to see the Decalogue because I had that's where each I one is. I really based, like the. It was yeah. each one is yes. based on one of the Ten Commandments, yes. right? Yes, yeah. I yeah. really like that. Yeah, I didn't see all of them. I've seen some of them, and I I liked all of them. The ones that I had seen. Yeah, I think yeah. I saw all of them. It's been so but long. but Red is a movie that you can revisit over and over. I did. And it's it's. Just, very, I had a copy rich. of it, and I just uh, did over the weekend. Yeah. It was just so good. Fantastic. All right, Christoph Kieslowski. And uh, before I give my my number, I do have my more ranked, so this is my number one, but some honorable mention. I'd already talked about Houston's The Dead. Criminally ignored film before the devil knows you're dead. Sidney Lumet's last film about the jewel store robbery. It really is. It's it's very, very good. It's so well acted. Oh, my God. Philip Seymour Hoffman and And, uh, uh, Ethan Ethan Hawke and Albert Finney. Again, yeah, yep. every, yeah right? every, actually everybody's. Well, it's a Lamette movie, and usually everybody is good in a right. Lamette movie. It's, he was great with actors. Um, he rehearsed. Yes, I'm. I'm a Tarko- more of a Tarkovsky fan than you guys are. I mean, Stalker, I think, is his masterpiece. Besides Andrei Rublev, but um, The Sacrifice, which I just saw recently a few months ago, is was his last film. And you know, he smoked himself to death. Basically, you know, mm. he died of lung cancer in his fifties. Cirque's Imitation of Life. I don't know much about his career and whether that. You know, Should I we act- talk about that movie? I actually kind of like the uh, the original. I don't like. I don't. I don't like. I don't like. You're not a Cirque fan. The only Cirque thing I ever liked was uh, Far From Heaven. <laughs> right, with Todd Haynes. <laughs> well, but if you're that influential on two directors as good as Todd Haynes and, and Raider Winner Fassbender, you got to have something. I going. guess, but I don't get it. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I and well, it's not. sort of like an inversion of soap opera. You could never really tell, is he making a soap opera or is he making fun of soap opera? But I don't think it was that yes. much fun. And yeah, I think and the answer is yes, because yeah, he's and, doing and both. I mean, visually, the movies are beautiful. Sumptuous, yeah. 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 Um, which is the one, uh, is it Magnificent Obsession, the or one that Jane Wyman, where she goes Yes, that's blind? Magnificent Obsession. Yeah, yeah, okay, because if you haven't seen that, you have to see it for Agnes Moorhead, because... <laughs> It's sort of like she gets a joke that nobody knows about. <laughs> I, I love Agnes Moorhead. I, and my last one is is you know nothing short of tragedy, and that's um, Taboo, um, the film that uh, Murnau was oh. did. He started as a South Seas documentary with uh, Flaherty, and then Flaherty dropped out. You know the great documentarian, and Murnau finished it and was. Uh, uh, it was, I thought a flattery dropped out of it. He did, yeah. Oh. And and Murnau was on the way on on his way back from a trip with some friends um, to the premiere of Taboo in '31, and he had this 14-year-old Filipino houseboy who asked if he could drive for a while, and Murnau said, "Sure." And there was a car accident. No one else in the car had a scratch, and Murnau was killed. Jesus. And he was he was young. Oh, it's 1931. I mean, he yeah. had just he had done Sunrise and uh, and and a couple of other not so good, you know, early. But but boy, what a, I mean, as I said when I was talking about Oh Fools, maybe you know the greatest person ever with a camera. I mean, see Sunrise or Nosferatu or Last Laugh or Tartuffe or any of those movies from the 20s that 
you know, I just think he and and if you're a Hitchcock fan, you'll recognize a lot of Hitchcock's moves in Murnau and in Lang too. Oh yeah, but oh, sure. um, yeah. oh well, Hitchcock was very much influenced by German expressionism, yeah. which we're going to talk about at our next episode because. But uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. So, but my number one is different from my other two because this was made by someone who knew that this was going to be his last film, and it is one of the great talk about tragic deaths. There's a reason that the highest honor in film in France is named after someone who died almost 90 years ago, and that's Jean Vigo. And it's one of the great tragedies of film that all of Vigo's work fits on one DVD. Because he only got to do three short films. You know, he did Apropos de Nice, which was, you know, like one of those, uh, you know, Symphony of the City kind of films about Nice. Then he did that little documentary about the swimmer, Tarist. Uh, swimming champion. Then, of course, Zero de Conwy. Yeah, which you I know, do which like a lot. in its thirty-five minutes is among the most pungent. I mean, pure Bunuel kind of hatred of authority. Yeah. and brilliant. And then his one feature, which he directed, dying of tuberculosis, yeah, literally sick, from yeah. a bed, uh, at age twenty-nine, where he died just a, a couple of weeks after its premiere. And that's my my number one, and that is La Delante from nineteen thirty-four. It's 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 very much like Sunrise. When watching it again, I felt because I like there's no, because there's not but there's not much of a story. It's a very simple story about a yeah. a guy who runs a barge and this woman really want young woman played by the amazing Dita Parlo wants to get out of her town so she kind of impulsively marries him because she thinks she's going to see all this exciting stuff and on the boat is Michel Simon who playing I, playing Père Jules. Oh my god. I love Michel Simon. And of Simon. course, you know, he borrows a little bit from Renoir because Beauchamp d'Aste who Plays Jean and Michel Simon yeah. were in Baudu Save from Drowning. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, uh, Vigo knew quality when he saw it. One of my favorite Renoirs. Oh, God. And it, it, and it is just about their trip down down the rivers to, they end up in Paris. And she's expecting that he's going to show her Paris. And he, you know, he gets very jealous and drags her back to the boat and she escapes. And there's in, in the most famous scene, the scene that you'll see in like highlight clips. You know they're separated, and he she tells her she tells him an old folk tale that if you look in water, if you put your head in water, you can see the one you love. And so he impulsively, when he's without her, dives into the water, yeah. and her image appears, floating. It's a very Murnau moment. Just beautiful um and she is in paris trying not not having much success on her own and there's that scene where he cuts back and forth where they're both kind of sort of writhing you know very obviously sexually for you know separately which was you know a little hot stuff for 1934 and um they miss and of course in the end they're reunited but it's it's just it's one of the most beautiful it basically you know what it also reminded me, reminded me of Sunrise? It also, I kept thinking that this is Edward Hopper. That if Edward Hopper were a filmmaker, he would have been Jean Vigo. Because hmm. Hopper found beauty in those sort of industrial, urban scenes that most people would have just rejected out of hand. But he saw the beauty in it. And that's what this film well, is. You know, Hopper was always about, it was about loneliness, Hopper. As, it, yeah. you know, as is this film in a way, you know, and... and God, the acting is just wonderful. Deste is fantastic. Dita Parlo, you know, who had a very odd and interesting career. It basically invented, along with Renoir, Vigo invents what the movement called poetic realism, which is picked up by other French directors in the 30s like Carnet and Duvivier, and then ultimately becomes a huge influence along with the Germans on noir, 
in this country yeah. and then you know comes back to France in the new wave and it's wonderful how this goes yeah, back this is, and forth this is a bit this film is like a darling of the new wave well and yeah. it's oh, what's yeah. the opening shot of umbrellas of Cherbourg yeah. but even before we the camera tilts over and we see the umbrellas and the rain coming down it's the, a barge on the yeah. river yeah. and I always mm. thought that was uh, Demi's little tribute to plus there's a scene where he's looking for her where uh, Jean is running on the beach that looked exactly like the way Truffaut shot the end of 400 Blows yeah yes. um, and so a huge influence on, on everyone a simple you know in the opening of Sunrise Murnau says that this is a song of two humans uh, that it is of all times and all places and that's the way I feel about Ladalan too and it is, it's not as bracing and exciting as Zero de Conduit is. And if you haven't seen that, it goes to the top of your list right away. But there is a beauty about this film. And you just think, my God, this guy was gone at 29. And he knew it was his last statement. And every minute of this film feels like it. I just love it. It gets richer and richer. If you're looking for plot and story, this is not your film. Yeah. But if you're yeah. looking... Which is probably why I kind of resisted it. I saw it in college in a French cinema class. And I, I do remember certain scenes. And of course, I remember oh. Michel Simon because I've always right. loved him. Who's since, wonderful. And little, since a little boy. Père Jules. And, and you know, the first time you'll see La Delange, you'll be like, what's the big deal? I felt that way about Sunrise too. I was like, yeah, I got. But 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 they but they both just grew and, and grew and grew on me. Form. And I, I so uh, my number one final film, and again, possibly because Vigo knew that this was the end, uh, was uh, La Valance from 1934. Michael, to your last one. Okay, this one I'm not going to spend too much time on. For one thing, it, apparently, unless you buy it, it's hard to get. It's impossible to stream. Um, this is Saraband. Oh, 2004. Bergman, yes, Ingmar Bergman's final film. He was 85 huh. when he shot it. It's a sequel of sorts to Scenes from a Marriage. Uh, this is the same two characters, uh, Marianne, played by Liv Ullman, and Johan, played by Erlen Josephson. Right. And they're reunited. They've long been divorced, but uh, Johan has inherited a great deal of money, and he's left his university job. He uh, lives in isolation in his grandfather's old home, but he must deal with his widowed son, Henrik, from a first marriage, and Henrik's 19-year-old daughter, a music prodigy, and they're both staying in a small cottage. And uh, it's basically, it's told in ten chapters, and it's a four-character chamber piece, and it's... The best way to describe it is about old man male hatred. Hmm. Bergman was not going out with a <laughs> <laughs> not going with a whimper. With a whimper, <laughs> not he, going gently into that good he, night. He was going out um, uh, basically with a with a bang. We 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 find out things that have happened with the couple since the original scenes from the marriage. Their two daughters. One is living in Australia, happily married. The other one is in an institution, catatonic. Mm. And uh, Ullman remarried and divorced. I mean, Ullman and Marianne. Um, but, the ba but she just decides to visit him out of the blue. Mm. And it's about... She's more of a sounding board for these other three characters. And uh, uh, there's a, a bitter... The son and the, the old man and his son, a 61-year-old music uh, instructor, just hate each other. When the son tries to commit suicide, the father's first reaction was, 
God, he can't do anything right. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not funny. (laughs) This is the... I'm describing what this film is. Did he he know it was his last film? Well, he was 85. Yeah. (laughs) And he hadn't really directed much since Fanny Alexander. He announced that as his final film. He had written some screenplays. Most of them not really very good. One of them... Uh, his son directed, uh, I can't remember the title, I think it was The Best Intentions. Mm. One of them that Ullman directed, Lee Ullman directed, which was wonderful, called Faithless. That yes, Urban right, yeah, that is, right, that's right. really that good. You saw, oh, good. good yeah. yeah, that one I, I do uh, uh, recommend. It was dedicated to Bergman's wife, huh. uh, who had died seven years previously. Previously, Which one? Ingrid, the, the last wife. Mm. And... Uh, Many parts of the film has references to previous films. There's an empty church from Winter Light. Hmm. There's the last testaments from dying women from the silence and cries and whispers. And then, of course, passages from Wild Strawberries, which is a meditation of old age that he shot in his 40s. Right. Memory. There's memory hmm. again, right? Yeah. I... I went to see... It was not a huge hit. It played at the New York Film Festival and it opened at... uh, film form, I thought, oh my god, the first Bergman directed film in, in years. I ordered a ticket like two weeks ahead of time. I got there, there were 50 people in the audience. Oh. <laughs> it was like... Um, and I was initially disappointed because it didn't give Liv Ullman enough to do. She was almost a narrator. Although there's a very touching mm. scene where they both go to bed, they're both naked. There's full frontal nudity. <laughs> but elderly <laughs> nudity. Uh, he was 81, she was 65. Um, it's just that Bergman was definitely uh, at the peak of uh, at his powers. There's also on the DVD, there is a uh, featurette, a, a documentary, about, documentary about making it, and it shows you him directing. It's basically no narrator. It just shows you him oh, cool. directing. Nice. Uh, I will be happy to lend you, either one of you, the, the, the movies. I don't think I've ever seen it. No, because it wasn't around much. It, it, um, I, as I say, I was disappointed because Ullman wasn't given enough to do. And, I just and she was a great actress. Great. Oh. And does everybody know, as of la- last week, it was announced that she will be receiving an honorary Oscar. Yay! Yep. All right, another she, one for the good guys. She, Lane May, Danny Glover, and uh, Samuel Jackson. Interesting. Danny Glover is getting the uh, The Herschel. Yeah. You never hear those names together in the same sentence. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it's a very angry and bitter film. And uh, I've never seen an adult father and son relationship seem so full of raw hatred. And apparently Bergman hated his father. His minister father. I mean, uh, that was part of the... uh, Stepfather in uh, Fanny and Alexander. Goes mm. out raging against the dying of the light. So I'm not saying that everybody should go buy this film unless you are a real Bergman fanatic. Completist, yep. Yeah. Well, I, I... Bergman, I think, is another director that's becoming neglected. And he's Absolutely. one of the great, one of the great, great Although, directors of, of all time. In September, HBO is remaking Scenes from a Marriage. Oy. Yeah. But the whole, not the movie... The whole six parts. Yeah, because right, the original the original right. TV, yeah, TV series was great. Yeah. Then they cut it down for, for the, like two for hours the film. for a film. Well, I saw the film before the TV series. Yeah, I was lucky. I saw the TV series uh, on PBS before I ever saw the movie. And then when I saw the movie, it's like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
But there, uh, Jessica Chastain and Os- Oscar Isaac. Oh, um, Daniel Bergman is listed as executive producer. So I, I got a feeling. Might be good. It, Might it, be good. Uh, you know. All right. Well, and there you have it. Our. Uh, I, I want to read. read a, I want to read a, a, Go, a, a quote from Martin Scorsese about Bergman. He said, "If you were alive in the fifties and sixties, and of a certain age." A teenager on your way to becoming an adult, and you wanted to make movies. I don't see how you couldn't be influenced by Bergman. Yep. I mean, he's he's like one of my favorites. I all mean, time. And, you, and you see him, you know, as recently uh, his influence in like something like First Reform, yeah. you know, which we all love so much from 2018, yeah. yes, which is you know definitely. has winter light all over it. Yeah. All right, so there it is. Our our look at some of the you know we we started by showing how many of our great directors did not have. <laughs> great films to conclude their career, either intentionally or not, but we hopefully have given you uh, some directions to go in as to some of our great directors who did. So, Michael, a, a relatively short necrology this well, time, got I five hope. people, three who died this week. All right. <laughs> not been a good week. Uh, Claire Popold, director, she was the widow of Bernardo Bertolucci. In her movies, she only directed three movies, High Season, Rough Magic, and Triumph of Love, hmm. which I did see with uh, Ben Kingsley and uh, Mira Savino. See. It's uh, uh, based on the uh, Merivale 18th century oh. farce. And I thought it was pretty funny. And she also co-wrote her husband's uh, Luna and Besieged and co-wrote Antonioni's uh, Zabriskie Point. She died at seventy-nine. Zabriskie Point might not. I like Zabriskie Point, although it's a it's a tough love. Yes, yeah. very tough. <laughs> I do not, but I haven't seen it in since it came out. That if was you that. like sand, yeah, that, I remember a lot of sand. A lot of sand. <laughs> a lot of sand. <laughs> Who okay. is next? Robert Downey Sr., underground film Ooh. director, known for. Did you ever see Putney Swope? Yeah, no, I just yeah. you don't like it. No, I love Putney oh. Swope. I hate the fact that he gave his seven-year-old kid acid. But, yeah, uh, well, you know, he also directed Greaser's Palace, Pound, and this was Robert Downey's film, Junior's film debut at the age of five. And he also directed, which I didn't uh, realize because I'd seen it, uh, the TV version of David Rabe's uh, Sticks and Bones for CBS. Mm. This is when the days wow. when CBS was doing, yeah. was doing good you, things. Sticks and Bones yep. is pretty risque. Yes. Yep. Yes. It's a good play. It was, and CBS had it. And he did a good job. And then he developed a cocaine habit. His first film... <laughs> Gee, you wonder... wonder how in, the, in Hollywood in the 60s? <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> see that coming. His first Plot film, twist. <laughs> his first film was Babo 63, which Taylor Mead, an actor from sure. the Andy Warhol group, played the President of the United States, and apparently they did this in front of the White House. Lovely. Uh, nobody said anything. It cost $3,000 to make. Okay, next is Richard Donner. Died at 91. And he directed mostly television until 1976, where his first big hit was The Omen. Oh, right, he directed... Yeah. I was thinking Superman was his first. No, That's no The Omen, which was a... Big hit. Big hit. Scared the action. hell out of me at age 11, I can and tell you. And it scared me at age 21. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I remember really liking that. Next was Superman with Christopher Reeve, Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman, and Ned Beatty. It was a big hit, and they shot 70... He had shot 75% of Superman 2 when the producer, Alexander Sokine, fired him and hired Richard Lester. And uh, have you ever seen... Superman I've seen two. Two, two is not bad. Yeah, well, the too. movie was a mess because both Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman refused to come back to work. Right. 
uh, without Donner. And there was a, a video version a version of Donner's Superman, too. I remember seeing it and not particularly liking it, but I, I didn't like Superman 1. Yeah, no, I yes. mean, he, he loses... <coughs> he, but it's funny, because compared to the new DC version with Henry Cavill as Superman, I mean, those films actually look pretty good. They have a sense of humor. They do. I was going to say, they have humor. humor. Mainly, it's hilarious. Hackman and, and Beatty were wonderful, and, and Valerie Perrine. Uh, they were the best parts, yeah. but unfortunately, but you Lex, could tell it was... Lex, my mother lives in Hoboken. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Then all the, the superhero movies now, they all take themselves very so seriously. Yes. Well, and then Donna did the Lethal Weapon. Yes, I, I, I have his other credits here. The Goonies. Goonies the is a film that has legs. People I've never watch seen it. it. Yep. I was too old, I think. The Toy, Lady Hawk, Scrooged, mm. which I did not, not like. like. Maverick, which I hated. Hated. Oh. Yeah, that was bad. That was it. And all four Lethal Weapon films. First one's actually kind of fun. I've seen one of them. I thought they were... I've seen one or Here, two of them. Here's I a surprise. Mel Gibson one. gets tortured. Oh. <laughs> Again, I'll bet you didn't see that coming. No. Okay. But, but I have to... Find, I'm quoting Danny Glover from that movie all the time in my job. Like, I'm getting too old for this shit. <laughs> right. <So. laughs> the next, sadly, was Ned Beatty yeah. at 83. Great actor. He had 162 wow. film and TV credits. Wow. And he didn't make his film debut until he was 32. Was that Deliverance? Deliverance, Deliverance sure. Wow. Yep. Other films were Network, Academy Award nomination sure. for Best Supporting Actor. He lost the Oscar to Jason Robards for All the President's Men, which also <laughs> featured Ned Beatty. Right. That's right. Um, I love him in that, that little party he yep. has in All the President's Men. Love him in Nashville. Nashville, yep. The Last American Hero, Silver Streak, Wise Child, 1941, The Toy, Back to School, The Big Easy, Prelude to a Kiss, Rudy, Cookie's Fortune, Charlie Wilson's War. Two movies I want to mention uh, that I think he's really, really good in. One is not well known called Hear My Song. It's no, an no, Irish no. film. He plays a reclusive Irish singer that needs to be found in order to save. Uh, yes. You yeah. saw it. Yes. Yeah. 1990, I think. Yeah. Very lovely film. And it's probably one of his few leading roles. The other one is Hopscotch. From yeah. right. in which he plays a villainous but hilarious CIA agent, supposedly modeled after George W. Bush, H. W. Bush Sr., huh. who's trying to kill Walter Matthau. He also appeared quite successfully as Big Daddy on stage in 19, uh, 2003 in Canada, right. yeah, yeah. New York. Yes. Huh. New York, very, very good. And my last one is Jerome Hellman. He died in 92. He was producer. He only produced seven films, but he won the Oscar. For Midnight Cowboy, okay, he was nominated for Coming Home. Uh, he has uh, five other films with The World of Henry Orient, mm. A Fine Madness, The Day of the Locust, mm. The Mosquito Coast, and Promises in the Dark, which he also directed. And that also co-starred Ned Beatty. Mm. Now, I've got a bone to pick with um, writers, or obituary writers. They do not do their homework because I read three obituaries of Jerome Hellman, and each of them led off with the fact that he won the Oscar for Midnight Cowboy and it cost a scandal. That Midnight Cowboy, uh, it was shocking that this was an X-rated movie that won the Oscar and uh, it caused a, you know, cultural riot, I don't know. It was all three uh, um, obituaries one from the New York Times, Hollywood Report, and Variety all said the same thing, and it wasn't true. 
Midnight Cowboy was favored to win the Oscar. I was 14 and I predicted it. Huh. Well, the, the competition was what, True Grit? It, no, no, it was um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, sure. which was the only one I thought had a chance. I think it's better than The Sting. Frankly, <laughs> I still like to sing a little better. You, you follow? Z, which was only <laughs> Z, which was the only foreign, which was only the second foreign language film ever to be nominated, and it was going to take the uh, foreign, foreign language. language film. And of a thousand days, which is which felt like a thousand days. It did. <laughs> Say thousand one. And the worst was Hello Dolly. Boy, go fault. So naturally, Midnight Cowboy was going to win, but these these. Uh, Obituary writers who obviously were not old enough to, you know, know I wonder if it was the same obituary writer for all three articles. I don't know. Maybe. Everybody's talking. But I was really, really annoyed. So, anyway. All right. Where is that Joe Buck? There is one bone that is officially picked. Yes. All right. Michael's right Where is that that Joe Buck? All right. To that, we introduce a new little featurette on on Vintage Sand, Jono. Yes. At the end of every episode going forward, we will introduce a quote from a film. And if you've seen the movie, you will recognize the quote. I won't use super famous quotes, like I'm making an offer that you can't refuse, or we'll always have Paris. Ah. Frankly, Scarlet, I don't give a damn. There you go. (laughs) So the quote I'm giving out is, I hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. I hate to take a bite. Now, I know that one, but if you do... If you've seen the movie... You will you, you know will recognize quote. it and check on our website www.vintagesand.com uh, for that and more information about the films that we are uh, that we talked about today. I'm really excited about our next episode. You know, our whole goal here with Vintage Sand, in all seriousness, is to try to open doors. I mean, one thing I hate about critics is that they often speak in critic speak and try to show you how smart they are. We we never claimed any yes. expertise. We're not film critics. We're not filmmakers. We're just fans, and we want to open doors. And you know, a lot of what we've learned about film, obviously, we've seen a lot, but it also comes from reading really good books about film. Yes. So we've tried to take you to school about film in August we're going to try to take you to the library and we're going to just do a short episode focusing on what we think are the essential film books um, for you to read to catch up on some of this stuff and to open some new perspectives on uh, to open new doors to filmmakers you don't know and maybe make some connections between films that you wouldn't have and I'm really excited about that one so that being said, I remind you, as I always do, that Vintage Sand is a five nines and a four production. We want to thank Melissa, newly returned to the nest. Yeah, she's come back to live with us. I'm still standing in August. That'll be good news. Really? Oh, it's a whole long story. No, it's good news. She's going to law school. So, yay, oh, yay. so in case we get sued for plagiarism or anything, we got a lawyer. Wonderful. Um, uh, thanks to uh, Mama Sue for her help, as always, and to Gabby for the cool ass logo. Remember that we are on Spotify. Uh, as well as Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Again, please check out the website now that you have even more motivation to with John's little quiz at www.vintagesand.com. Leave us your feedback and suggestions. Stay cool, stay safe, and may your favorite films always be streaming.